It's the 2nd of June, AD 57. We can date that from some of the things that have happened before, but mainly because it's just after the Feast of Pentecost. And uh, Paul says in Acts 24, 17, that he's in Jerusalem to bring a large gift of money from the Gentile churches in Asia, that's modern-day Turkey, uh, and from Greece, to the Christian churches, church in Jerusalem. And while Paul's in the temple, he's spotted by some Jews from Turkey, uh, perhaps some of the ones that we saw earlier, uh, that know and hate Paul because of his preaching that Jesus is the Messiah. So let's have a look at the layout of the temple. So if you step, there we go. I don't know if the light's good enough. But uh, here's the temple. And, um, and they probably, I should have brought a, a thing with me, a pointer with me, but uh, this is the court of the Gentiles. And uh, they found Paul somewhere like here and they pulled him out here. The doors were closed and they started killing him. So they see Paul, they seize him, they stir up the crowd and, in, uh, and the Bible says they're in the very act of killing Paul when the Roman commander intervenes in the nick of time and saves Paul's life. Up here is the Roman fortress of Antonia. And um, during the feast times, the Jerusalem was very busy uh, with thousands and thousands of visitors. It's a time of trouble, high tension, and the Romans would keep a good lookout to make sure that everything's going uh, peacefully in the temple. And one of them spots this big disturbance and they rescue Paul in the nick of time. And that's the first time the Romans have to rescue Paul. The Romans allow Paul to speak to the Jewish crowd and he speaks to them in Aramaic. And the crowd listen to his story about the risen Jesus Christ. But when Paul gets to the part where Jesus sends him to preach to the Gentiles, at the word Gentiles, the crowd start rioting again and shouting that Paul's not fit to live. And the Romans have to rescue Paul again the second time in the space of a few hours. That's Acts 22, 24. The next day, the 3rd of June, AD 57, the Roman commander brings Paul before the Sanhedrin. So Paul's up here, kept somewhere in the bar barracks. And they, now the Sanhedrin normally meet here. It's the, the Jewish parliament, if you like. It's the chief priest and all the elders uh, of the country. And they normally meet in this building here. And um, so they bring Paul down some of these steps, either that way or this way, into here. The, um, the Romans wouldn't be allowed in there because they're Gentiles. So they must have met somewhere else around here. And um, uh, they bring Paul before the Sanhedrin, meeting in the temple area, and uh, they start uh, questioning Paul, and the dispute becomes so violent between two factions in the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, that the commander was afraid that Paul was going to be torn to pieces, and the troops go down again, down the stairs, and take Paul away from the Sanhedrin by force. Acts 23, verse 10. Saving Paul's life for the third time in 24 hours. And um, June the 4th dawns. 
Acts 23.12, which we read, and we see a conspiracy form to assassinate Paul. Now, the conspiracy is formed, verses 12 to 15, and it's a serious plot to assassinate Paul. There's a large group, over 40 men, it says in verse 13, and they're expecting only a small detachment of Roman soldiers to be guarding Paul. These men are serious about killing Paul. They take a solemn vow to kill Paul and they bind themselves to it with very strong conditions that they're not going to eat or drink until Paul is dead. That's a pretty serious oath, isn't it? They They intend to kill Paul within 24 to 48 hours, don't they? They know they need help, this group of conspirators. They need Paul brought out of the fortress of Antonia again and into the outer temple court again. And so they need the help of the chief priests and Jewish elders, the very top men in the country, verse 15. And they say to them, you get the Romans to bring him down to us on the pretext of getting more information about Paul's case. We'll do the rest. We're ready to kill him before he gets here. So they're going to kill him on the way down those steps, aren't they? Apparently, the chief priests and elders agree to go along with it. And in verse 21, we read that a few hours later, the conspirators are waiting for the Roman commander's agreement to, to their request that Paul should be brought before the Sanhedrin to be questioned. It's a large plot, more than 40 assassins versus an expected small detachment of soldiers. They just need to suddenly overwhelm the unsuspecting Romans and stab Paul with daggers or swords in the confusion. It's a good plan, isn't it? 40 or more committed men acting together can readily pull it off it's got all the hallmarks of success Paul will likely die the 5th of June AD 57 that would be D-Day death day for Paul the Romans won't be able to save Paul the fourth time but then the plot's uncovered isn't it Paul's sister and her family live in Jerusalem. Paul's nephew hears of the ambush and he goes to see Paul in the barracks of the fortress of Antonia and he tells Paul all about it and he he knows about the plot in detail and Paul calls the centurion over and asks him to take this young man to the commander and the centurion does. Paul's nephew is probably only a, a very young man perhaps just a young boy. He's called a young man three times in verses 17, 18 and 19 and he's called a youth in verse 22. And the the commander, the Roman commander, uh, Claudius Lysias, verse 19, it says in verse 19, he took the young man by the hand and took him to the side. So it sounds like he's quite a young boy, doesn't it? And um, the testimony of innocence is immediately believed, isn't it? Perhaps because the chief priest had already 
asked the commander to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin the next day. And the commander orders that Paul's nephew keeps all this plot a secret. So the, the conspiracy forms, the plot is uncovered, and now the plot is frustrated. Verses 23 to 35. Claudius Lysias takes immediate action using some of the large forces at his disposal. There'll be over a thousand men inside the fortress. And nearly 500 of them are to escort Paul safely out of the powder keg that is Jerusalem to Caesarea, which is about 76 miles away by road, under the cover of darkness. And Paul will be safely away before the conspirators know anything about it. And the commander provides more than one horse for Paul, and he uses overwhelming force to prevent these 40-plus plotters from even considering making the move against Paul in the unlikely event that they discover that Paul has been taken away out of harm's way. Now, Caesarea is the capital of the Roman province of Judea, not Jerusalem. That was the civil capital. And the Roman procurator, Marcus Antonius Felix, has his residence there. And in verses 25 to 30, we see Claudius Lysias, the Roman commander, writes a covering letter for the Roman procurator Felix, who is in his palace at Caesarea. And in verse 31, we see the 470 soldiers take Paul through the night to Antipatris, which if, is a distance of about 42 road miles. Now, exactly which way they went, I'm not sure. Uh, but this is very mountainous area here. I don't know if you can see on the map, it's very mountainous. And they're traveling by night. So they'll have to take a secure way, a path well, well known. And they go over hills and mountains. It's mainly downhill, but it is at night. And they've got 400 marching soldiers and 70 cavalry on horses. And verse 32 tells us that once safely away from Jerusalem, that's by the time they got to Antipatris, once safely away here, they send the soldiers back, the foot soldiers back, and the cavalry continue on to Caesarea, still going downhill to the coast. That's another 34 road miles. And verse 33, Paul and the letter are handed over to Felix, who keeps Paul locked up until his accusers can arrive five days later and make their case against him. So that's the plot. It was a good plot. It's uncovered and then it's frustrated. But Paul is not out of trouble yet because Paul is on trial for his life in chapter 24 verses 1 to 23. Paul is in a courtroom. It's a formal trial in front of the Roman procurator of Judea, Felix. His, his accusers are the high priest and the Sanhedrin. So they're the highest religi religious and ethnic rulers in Judea under the Romans. Tertullus, 
is probably a Roman, but he's Latin speaking because that was the language of the courtroom. And he's speaking, is the lawyer speaking for the Sanhedrin. And there's a threefold accusation by the Sanhedrin against Paul. And these are serious charges. And the first one is treason. They accused Paul of treason against the Roman state and the emperor by stirring up riots all over the Roman world. That's verse, chapter 24, verse 5. And then the second charge, another serious charge, is heresy. Heresy against the law of Moses. They say he's the ringleader of a Nazarene sect, verse 5, which by implication is not an officially sanctioned religion by the Romans. And the third thing they accuse him of is desecration, of breaking Jewish law by desecrating the temple, verses 7 and 8. The Romans had made desecrating the temple punishable by death. It was the Jewish law and the Romans supported them in that. This is a time of great peril for Paul. These are serious charges. It's triple jeopardy. If the treason charge sticks, then Felix will put Paul to death. If the heresy charge sticks, then Paul is a leader, a ringleader of an illegal religion and so subject to death by the Romans. If the temple desecration charge sticks, then Paul will be handed over to the Jews for them to put him to death. It's a serious time for Paul. And then we have the, the threefold defence by Paul. His defence against each of these three serious charges. So treason, he says in verse 12, I wasn't arguing with anyone in the temple or in the city or in the synagogues. I have caused no disturbance here whilst here in Jerusalem. And these people have no evidence to back up their claim that I'm causing insurrection either here in Jerusalem or in the wider Roman Empire. On the second charge of heresy, he says, yes, I am a follower of the way, which these people called a sect, but it isn't a sect because I believe everything in the law and prophets, verse 14. I believe everything in the revealed word of God, the Bible, the same as these men do. I believe in God and the resurrection, verse 15. And I'm trying to obey both God and man with a good conscience. Therefore, Paul is saying, the way is just another party like the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And the third charge desecration of the temple he says the opposite is true I was ceremonially clean when they attacked me in fact I was observing the very strictest rules of the Nazarite vow and I didn't create any disturbance verse 18 so that's Paul's refutation of the charges 
Verse 22, Felix, it says, was well acquainted with the way. Well acquainted with Christianity. So he knew it wasn't a religion of violence and rebellion, but one of peace, respect, law-keeping, and love to God and man. And in light of the content of Claudius Lysa's letter, Acts 23, 29, etc., and Paul's defence, Felix postpones judgment. In fact, like many a politician, he kicks the problem into the long grass, doesn't he? He's not wanting to aggravate the Jews by releasing Paul, nor does he want a Roman citizen, Paul, to be murdered on his watch. So he says, oh, I'll, I'll wait until the commander comes down and we'll look at it then. And verse 23, he allows Paul's friends to take care for, of him, to visit him and to meet his needs. Now you might remember Acts 21 verses 8 to 15, Philip the evangelist lives in Caesarea, this very town where Paul now is. It's where Paul stayed less than two weeks before this incident. So there's Christians there who will support Paul in his needs while he's uh, kept in secure custody. So we have the, the preacher and the politician, don't we? Acts 24, verses 24 to 27. Marcus Antonio Felix uh, was governor of Judea. That's his image on a coin from AD 52 to 59. You can, might just see here, it says IUD on the side, that's Judea. And, um, and according to Tertullus, when speaking for the high priest, Felix had brought peace and reform to the Jewish nation. Felix's present wife, his second wife, was Drusilla, who was a Jewess. She was the daughter of King Herod Agrippa I. That's the king who put the apostle James to death in Acts chapter 12. And the Roman commander Claudius Lysias, in his letter, says that when he found out that the accusations against Paul were concerning the Jewish law, he sent Paul and his accusers to appear before the governor Felix, presumably because it was well known that Felix was knowledgeable about Jewish law. That is, you know, when you're talking about Jewish law, we're talking about the religious laws, aren't we? The law of God, the law of Moses. But not only did Felix know about mainstream Jewish law and religion, but according to verse 22 of Acts 24, Felix was also well acquainted with the way. Felix already knew quite a bit about Christianity. And Felix certainly had a keen interest, it seems, in learning more about Christianity. In verse 24, we read that Felix and his wife sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Jesus Christ. And over the next two years, verse 26 tells us, that Felix sent for Paul frequently and talked with him. It's amazing, isn't it? A politician who can not only talk, but who can listen. Where can you find one of them? And this politician is listening to the truth. 
So what does Paul discuss with Felix? Well, Paul states there's a future resurrection, Acts 23, 21. And this is the fundamental reason, he says, that he was on trial before the Sanhedrin the previous week. Look, learn. There is more than just this life. Doesn't that change everything? Eh? Isn't that a radical statement in our present world? There is more than just this life. There is a resurrection. And Paul says in Acts 23:15, there is a resur- there will be a resurrection of the dead. Everyone will be raised. A resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So actually, there's not just a resurrection, but there is also a judgment, a moral judgment. The dead are raised as either righteous or wicked. So this changes everything again, doesn't it? Not just for Felix, but for you and me too. The resurrection of the wicked and the righteous Everyone will be judged. Two groups. There will be a moral judgment regarding the resurrected humanity, separating us into two groups. Make no mistake, Paul and Felix will be there. You and I will be there. Which group will you be in? Keeping the 11th commandment, you know, that's the one that we're good at, not getting caught. Keeping the 11th commandment is not sufficient. Everything is known. Everything is judged. Doesn't that change everything? And verse 24 tells us that Paul told Felix and Drusilla about faith in Christ. And he tackled it this way. He spoke about, it says in verse 25, righteousness, self-control and the judgment to come. Righteousness. You know, there's a standard and it's God's standard and we don't live up to it for one minute. Jesus Christ uniquely did live up to that very high standard of sinlessness. And that is the one and only standard acceptable to a holy God. And Paul spoke about self-control. We have to live a certain way. As Paul says in Acts 24, 16, I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. We have responsibilities towards God and towards our fellow man, towards God, to live in his world according to his law, loving and worshipping him in our thoughts, word and deeds. We've got responsibilities towards our fellow man, to love them as we love ourselves. That means no exploitation of others, means we have to respect them and we have to do them good at our own expense. And we have to point them towards Jesus Christ, sharing the gospel with them. 
the judgment to come. We're going to be assessed according to that standard of righteousness. We're going to be assessed according to God's standard of righteousness by the very one who did live up to it, the righteous judge, Jesus Christ. And so we clearly see our problem, don't we? My problem, your problem, everybody's problem. We will fail at the judgment because we fail here every day. At almost every opportunity, we fail to be righteous. There is, Paul states in Romans 3.10, none righteous, no, not one. And he's just echoing the words of Old Testament Psalm 14 and 53. And that's the problem of the human race from the very beginning to this very hour. And that's why we need faith in Jesus Christ. We need righteousness to pass the judgment on that great resurrection day. But we don't have any of our own. So we must get it from the only righteous man that ever lived, Jesus Christ. He's the eternal God who came into this world to save us from our sins. How simple it is to abandon our attempt to be good enough ourselves and to trust in the one who is good enough for everyone. And yet, how difficult it is to stop attempting to self-justify ourselves. I'm almost good enough. That's what we think. Faith in Jesus Christ, Acts 24, 24. So Paul talks to Felix and Drusilla about faith in Jesus Christ. Someone once said that faith in Jesus Christ was three things. Knowledge of the truth, believing in the truth, and trusting in the truth. And Paul is talking about faith in Jesus Christ, verse 24, and he's speaking about judgment, righteousness, and self-control. And Felix has heard some of this before. He was quite knowledgeable, it says, about the way. And he's hearing it again. And now, listening to Paul, he starts to believe it. So he's, he's got the knowledge. He's starting to believe it. And he became scared. Are you afraid? Yeah. Verse 25. When you hear about, talk about the judgment, righteousness and self-control, do you fear? You should. Judgment of sinners is a fearful thing because we have all sinned. I have and you too. Yes, every one of you. And verse 25, as Paul talked about righteousness and self-control and judgment to come, about faith in Jesus Christ, Felix was afraid and he said, 
That's enough for now. Stop. Eh? What's your reaction when you start to fear? Is it, that's enough, stop. Don't want to hear anymore. I've had enough. Do you want to run away from God because you fear him? Or do you want to run to him to sort out the problem right now? So you've heard it. You've got the knowledge. Do you believe it? Do you believe it's true? Will you put your trust in Jesus Christ and accept his righteousness? Where do you stand? Where do you stand in the light of the judgment to come? Do you stand in your sins or do you stand clothed in Christ's righteousness through faith in him? Now, Paul talks to Felix and Drusilla about faith in Christ. And what an opportunity for Paul that was, talking many times about Jesus Christ to the ruler of his own country. Which of us, eh? there's some preachers in the room, which of us would like to spend two years talking to the ruler of a great country about faith in Jesus Christ? But what an opportunity for Felix. He's the successor, you know, 20 years later of Pontius Pilate. And he hears so much about faith in Jesus Christ. Felix had that great expositor of the gospel in his charge for two years. Paul was a, an apostle, not just an ordinary Christian. He had personally witnessed the bodily raised Jesus Christ firsthand. He'd been taught, Paul had been taught by direct revelation from Jesus for two to three years in Arabia. Paul had personally established arguably more Christian churches than anyone alive at that time. And Paul was the author of at least six Christian books, Galatians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Corinthians, and the letter to the Romans. Perhaps the greatest explanation of the gospel of Jesus Christ that has ever been written. And Paul would go on to write seven or eight more of the great books of the New Testament. Was Felix wasting his opportunity? Are you making the most of the opportunities open to you to find out the facts, the truth, and the application of the Bible to yourself? Felix, he wasted the greatest opportunity in his life. Will you? So Felix keeps Paul under guard for two years and heard him often. Felix, you know, ever the politician kept Paul in prison to keep him favour with the Jews that he ruled. Then Festus rep replaced Felix as procurator of Judea in AD 59. 
Two years after that, Felix was dead. Felix was conscience stricken. But ultimately, he was just an impenitent sinner with a fearful apprehension of the judgment to come. Is that you? Now, what do we learn in this passage? Well, there's a lot to learn. But the first verse I read was uh, Acts 23:11, where the following night, that's the 2nd of June, the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Why does Jesus Christ appear to Paul just then? The risen and glorified Lord Jesus Christ, for that's what he is now, is telling Paul that he, Jesus, is in control. Jesus is totally in control of everything. And Paul won't end up being killed here, despite all the dangers and difficulties. Jesus is saying, I will have you testify about me in Rome. So the very next day, a young lad just happens to hear about a conspiracy plotting to assassinate the Apostle Paul. And that young lad just happens to be Paul's nephew. And the lad reports it first to Paul and to the Roman commander and the military might of Rome is used to whisk Paul away by night, guarded by an army, outnumbering his assailants by more than 10 to 1. Who could have predicted that? It's amazing how Paul's life hinged on such an unlikely occurrence in a big city full of festival goers that his own nephew would overhear the details of a conspiracy. The fact is Christ is in control. In Acts 23, 11, Jesus did not say, I am hoping that you might possibly testify about me in Rome. Rather, he tells Paul that he will testify about the Lord Jesus in Rome. These are the facts, Paul. You will go to Rome and testify about me. So Jesus is in control, and he's in control of even the smallest things. In fact, he has to be in control of even the smallest things if he is to be in control of anything. The route a small boy took through the city and the loose tongues of conspirators are all controlled by Jesus Christ. Big doors turn upon small hinges. Christ controls the future. And to be able to do that, Jesus Christ controls all the details of today, of the present, here and everywhere throughout the world. Do you believe that? The Bible teaches that cover to cover. Paul knew this and just six months before this incident that we've been studying, Paul wrote a letter to the Romans and in Romans 8:28 he wrote, and we know that all things work together for good for those who love God to those who are the called 
according to his purpose. All things work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. What a precious promise that is for the people of God. Are you one of them? And this is true not just in Paul's life, but your life also. Christ is in control of the smallest things. Maybe on the next slide. Yeah, he's in control of the smallest things. Just look at, at these last few weeks. So up here, do you know what this is? That's the coronavirus. It's called that because a corona is like a crown or halo and there is around it. And it's one of the smallest things. It's about 100 nanometers in diameter. That is, it's about a tenth of a millionth of a meter across. It's tiny. Bacteria are a hundred times bigger. And so the coronavirus is so small, about a hundred million of them could sit on a pinhead. Yet something so very tiny is having a huge effect across the whole world. And it's changing the lives and plans of hundreds of millions of us. Never mind what it's doing to business confidence in the stock market. If Jesus does not control this small virus, he cannot control anything in this world, can he? Because the origin and the propagation and the effects of being affected by this virus is changing hundreds of millions of people's plans today. Do you believe that Jesus is in control of all? Yes, all the circumstances of your life? Well, Christ is in control. He plans and controls all circumstances and issues. And not only that, he knows and cares tenderly each of us as individuals. He cares in all that we experience and endures. Now, Christ's control of events is not like some impersonal law of gravity. Rather, Christ's care is a tender, loving control of events, knowing all future outcomes designed to bring his people safely through the trials of this life and to the blessed happiness of entering the eternal kingdom to come. All while building his church and bringing greater and greater glory to the Father and to the Lord Jesus himself. We don't see the big picture and we may be disheartened by our short-sighted focus on our own immediate issues to do with our transient frailty. But know this, Jesus Christ loves his people. And ultimately, there is no better care for us or for others 
than what Jesus Christ has done and is doing for his blood-bought flock. Put your trust in him. Amen. Our final hymn before the throne of God above. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for your word and for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that we've had a glimpse of him this morning. We pray that having fed our spirits, you might continue with us and feed our bodies in this uh, meal we're going to share together and give us a time of refreshing Christian fellowship as we spend the next hour or so in each other's company. May we build each other up and encourage each other in the way of our Lord and Saviour in whose name we pray. Amen. <laughs>